All right, so here we are, finally, the last chapter of Genesis. We've managed to get through the whole thing in a year, and I've really enjoyed uh, studying this, learned a lot from it. And so what I want to do in this chapter is uh, we're going to go through it, and at the end, I want you to make sure everybody understands the significance of the book of Genesis and kind of um, why these stories are chosen and why, you know, there, there's a reason for all this. You know, what we're seeing in the book of Genesis it's not being written just because it is what happened, even though it is what happened. But there's a special reason all these things are given. And when we understand that, it helps us kind of put everything in perspective and I think understand the book a lot better. But let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. And it says, And Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And the physicians embalmed Israel. And 40 days were fulfilled for him, for so were fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed, and the Egyptians mourn for him three score and ten days. So notice the embalming of Jacob that's going on here. And the reason for that is because they needed his body to stay somewhat good for a while because of the fact that Jacob requested that they would uh, bury him in that cave of Machpelah in the land of his fathers. And so, uh, you know, they needed, they needed some time. And you can only keep a dead body around for so long uh, with all, without embalming it before you have some real major problems. So that's why they're doing this. And this is really a major moment historically just because of the fact this is the death of a very great man. You know, unfortunately, the Bible movies have ruined things for a lot of people when it comes to their perspective and, and how they look at these things. In any Bible movie you watch, they make these people look so primitive. They make... Uh, you know, and the thing you've got to realize about the Jews, cleanliness was a big deal to them. But you go watch any Jewish movie or movie about the Jews from the Old Testament, and there's always they're always dirty. There's always dirt in their face. It's like part of their makeup. If you do a Bible movie, makeup they use is dirt. It, it really is. One of these, you know, recovering fundamentalist jokers today was talking about how basically Jesus was like a hippie. I was criticizing hippies. And he's like, Jesus wore sandals and a long tunic and had long hair and a beard. You know, sounds pretty hippie to me. Like, you are ignorant. You know, I hate talking down to people, but I, like, shared a picture from one of these Jesus movies. I said, just, you know, this is not Jesus. This is an actor. Okay? Da Vinci's depiction of Jesus, okay, Jesus wasn't the model for that. And, you know, you have to explain these things to people today. But have you ever read the whole Old Testament, to see how they live and how they made a big deal about these things. There was a lot they were able to do, but, you know, we've got this evolutionary mindset, you know, where things have always been moving forward. And, no, historically, things have moved forward, and then major things happen, and they go backwards. And, you know, before, you know, the Dark Ages, you know, there were some great advancements, and, you know, there was a lot of great things that were being accomplished, and, but, you know, it's like we think it was like the Dark Ages then because this was before that. No, it wasn't. And this is just ignorance. This is people who are influenced by the evolutionists. They're influenced by Hollywood. And so they think these weird things. And so we think of Jacob as like some, you know, Bedouin out in a tent somewhere because that's the way they made it look. And he did dwell in tents. But understand, he was a big deal. There were hundreds, actually probably thousands of people that he was over, that was a part of their group. There were 70 that physically came from him that went into Egypt. 
but they probably had hundreds and hundreds of servants. We see that. We've seen evidence of that through the book of Genesis, but most people don't think about that. So when Jacob dies, this is a big deal. This is a big man. This is a leader of this great nation. And um, and it it had an impact in Egypt. You know, I think a lot of it was probably out of their respect for Joseph, but they all of Egypt had mourning for seventy days. So this is a bit, this is a big deal. That's how great of a man he was. And you know, we don't go to these kind of extremes today when people die. But when great people die, often things are done. You know, now it's just kind of put a flag at half staff. But you know, in some countries they might make a bigger deal. I imagine in Rome they probably when the Pope dies, I don't know. I'm sure they do something. For a while there. I mean, a lot of the world does. You know, when people like the Pope dies or somebody who is perceived as, as great and influential. And same thing with Jacob. He was that great of a man. He was that big of a deal. He wasn't just some dirty Bedouin out in a tent somewhere. Okay? He was a big deal. He was a big man. And it's important that we get that in our heads. You know, we, we need to understand this thing. He was somebody that the people of all those lands, they knew who he was. They, he, he was a big deal. So verse 4 says, And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die in my, I die in my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan. There shalt thou bury me. Now therefore let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father according as he hath made thee swear. Now, something we need to notice about this here. This is a reminder that in reality, Israel was in captivity right here. Now, it doesn't seem like it because Pharaoh loved them so much and loved Joseph so much and was so nice to them. But there's no doubt in my mind, and I, I never really noticed this before because I always wondered, why didn't they leave Egypt? Why, you know, why didn't they leave Egypt after the famine was over? And I'll tell you why. It's because they couldn't. They, they were already in captivity pretty much as soon as they went there. It's just, it was a nice captivity. It was a soft oppression. Kind of like what we're living in in America today. We're captive, but we're told we're free. And most of us are dumb enough to believe it, you know. So we, we act like everything's fine, you know. We probably should be doing something. But everybody's telling us we're okay, so, oh, okay, well, we don't do anything. But one of these days, you know, it's going to get a lot worse. And we're going to find ourselves completely in bondage. And we're, you know, we're going to be like, well, how did this happen? And, but in reality, that's where they already were because Joseph's got to get Pharaoh's permission. Why didn't he just say, well, Pharaoh, my father died. He wants to be buried in Egypt. My family, we're all heading out. But no, he had to get his permission. And he told them they could. But you're going to notice, not, every, not everybody and everything went. So let's keep reading. Verse 7 says, And Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and the elders of the land of Egypt. Now, they could have went for moral support. They could have went to help and to minister to them. But they could have been going, too, to keep an eye on them. That's very possible, too. I don't know. But look at it says, And all the house of Joseph and his brethren and his father's house only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. So obviously, Pharaoh knows if they're not taking their kids and their flocks and herds, they'll come back. Because they're not just going to abandon their families there. And you might remember, later on in the book of Exodus, 
when Moses was trying to get him to you know, let him go, Pharaoh told him, fine, you can go, but you got to leave your flocks and your herds and everything. And Moses told him, no, we're taking everything with us. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of interesting there. But verse 9 says, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. So, uh, you know, he's he's being accompanied on this trip. I don't think they wanted him going anywhere, but Pharaoh loved Joseph enough. He was allowing him to go and do this thing and to keep this promise to his father because, you know, Pharaoh was appreciative of what Joseph had done. He had saved Egypt. And so, but this great caravan of people, it would have gotten the attention of all the people between Egypt and Israel. It would have been kind of like, but in a much larger scale, when you see a really long funeral procession. Have you ever had to wait for a funeral procession? It just kept going and going and going. And when you see that really long procession like that, you know what you often wonder? Who was that? Because it was such a big deal. So imagine how the people back in those days felt when they see this large caravan of people with all these dignitaries from Egypt coming to the land of Israel, Israel just to bury somebody. That would have gotten a lot of attention. And it would have, um, you know, it would have been a pretty big deal. And so it says um, in verse 10, and they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. And there they mourned with a great company, a very sore lamentation. And he made mourning for his father seven days. So after they had the 70 days of mourning just over him dying, it was like they needed another seven days to mourn too because, you know, I think one of the hardest things at funerals that I've seen is leaving the graveside. I think that's one of the hardest moments often for people in funerals because, you know, you hate just leaving that person in the ground, but that's what you have to do. And you got to walk away. And I can't even imagine, you know, having a really close relative like that and, and have to do that. And so this was, a, you know, this was a big deal. So they've got seven more days of mourning. And it says, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians, wherefore the name of it was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond Jordan. And Mizraim means Egypt, and Abel means meadow. So they kind of call it meadow of Egypt. I mean, so it's like they see this, and they know that whoever this was, and I think they knew who it was, but they realized this was a big deal, even in Egypt, which would have made an impact on them. So in verse 12, it says, And uh, his sons did unto him according as he commanded them, for his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for possession of a burying place of Ephron the Hittite before Mamre. Now, right here is another example of how things were more civilized than Hollywood makes out. Because think about this. Abraham purchased that cave years ago. Okay, Isaac later buried uh, you know, his wife there and he was buried there. But then now they've been gone for years. They've been gone for years, yet everyone knows who this plot belongs to. Everybody understands all that. You know why? Because even back then, they had some culture. They had some law and order. We think it was all horrible because we read the stories of certain places like Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the really wicked cities. But those ones are brought up and mentioned because they were exceptional of how, because of how wicked they were. And a lot of times, too... 
because of the fact that society was plummeting and getting out and getting bad. And so later on, even in Israel, while you see things going good in Israel, later you see things where every man's just doing that, which is right in his own eyes. You know why? Because they got away from God and things went downhill. And so there have been times, you know, in our, in our world and in our culture where things were pretty good in a lot of places, things were very civilized, there was a lot of organization, but then later it all fell apart. Sometimes because God destroyed these places because they forgot them. Sometimes it was because other armies came through and just destroyed everything. Sometimes it was because of great famines. But at the same time, just get this Hollywood image out of your head of these early patriarchs being like a bunch of cavemen. That's not what they were like. There was a lot of uh, there's a lot of evidence that things were very civilized back then. I mean, what do you think would happen today if you own some land and then you just left it for 20 years? Chances are the government would probably take it back over at some point. You know why? Because it's never really ours. Because our country doesn't really respect property rights and the fact that, no, this belongs to them. They have the attitude, if the society needs it, if the community needs it, we can take it. And... You know, said again, you know, we think because we have technology, we're civilized. Okay? We are not civilized in our country today. Our, our country is wicked. It's just we have technology that makes us able to do a lot of great things. And so a very lazy society can still thrive because of technology. But a lazy society is still a very immoral society. And that's why we have so much immorality. That's why we've got so many people who are able to sit around and become perverts watching junk on their computers all day long because they don't have to live in a, you know, they're able to live in a world where they don't have to work in order to eat. And so what do they do? They just sit around and they fill their minds with trash and we, and we have and perverts all over the place. You know, we've got homosexuality and all that perversion going all over the place. And there's still a ton of disease in that community, even with all we have to help with cleanliness and to protect people from that, even with all our medications. So imagine, though, okay, you know, because we do, we think we're so superior to these people back then. But let's just imagine if all of a sudden, even with all our knowledge that we have right now, if all of a sudden all our medicine was gone and all our technology was gone. Do you realize how fast? our civilization would just collapse. We'd be done for. Within a, within a couple years, we would, we would probably have killed each other out if all of a sudden just the grid went down. It, it just, if the grid went down, people didn't have power. No power, no phones, no internet. How long before everybody's just dying? What do you think would be happening to all those perverts in their basements? When they got to go step outside and see the sunshine for the first time. And, you know, and then they go out in, in the world and try to satisfy their desi sick, twisted desires around real people where they're not going to be protected by a perverted government. They're going to die real fast. They're going to die real quick. So, uh, so understand, civilizations back then, they held together and did just fine without technology, without all these things that we have today. So don't get this arrogant attitude. Don't get this attitude that we are evolving. We are not evolving. We have technology. That's all, that's all there is to it. Once that's gone, it's over. So um, 
these are all things we need to put in perspective and keep in mind and uh, lose this arrogant attitude that we have. So where were we? Uh, verse 14. It says, And Joseph returned into Egypt, uh, and he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And again, Joseph's brothers, they still haven't gotten over the guilt of what they've done. Even though Joseph's forgiven them, even though Joseph told them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They still had it in their minds that, you know what, we're going to pay for what we've done. That was, kind of, that was kind of their attitude they had. These guys didn't understand grace, even though Joseph has showed them grace in a major way. And, um, and I also, you know, this attitude that they have, too, you know, they're thinking Joseph's going to kill us. They're, this is another example of someone misjudging somebody because they're judging them based on how they are in their own heart. This is another great example of that. Because all of them are thinking, if I was Joseph, I would kill us. That's what they would do because they were that wicked. They can't imagine that Joseph actually means what he's saying. They, they can't imagine somebody who's actually good and genuine. And again, mark it down. People who are always just projecting horrible thoughts, horrible motives on people are bad people. Okay, mark it down. Whenever they're just going with no evidence, okay? Oh, it's just my, it's my perception. Well, your perception is twisted because you were twisted in your mind. We all tend to see things and we, we, we assume people think and judge things the way we do in our hearts. And so understand when people say things like this, like they did here, it reveals their heart. And I think it showed Joseph that his brothers still have some serious issues. And I think that's one of the reasons we're going to see Joseph start weeping when they say this to him. It's like, what is wrong with these guys? And, um, man, you know, we, we could preach a whole sermon just on that. But, man, you know, those of you, if you just want to go out there and just be one of these maniac railers that's always just, you know, talking about how wicked everybody is and how evil everybody is because they did something you didn't like and therefore they must be this, 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 and this. And, always accusing everybody of being a pervert and a pedophile. You are revealing your heart. And people like me are not impressed. All right, you're not hardcore. You're, you know, you're, you're messed up in the head. That's what you are. So just, uh, I see through it. I see through it. And so verse 16 says, And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command... Before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Now, here's, here's what I don't understand. First off, why did they send a messenger to tell him this? Why didn't they go tell him this? Why did they send a messenger? You know, who was this messenger? You know, was it one of their children, one of their cute little children? One of their little girls with curly hair, you know, to go, please don't kill my daddies. You know, you know I mean, is that, is that what they, I mean, and, and now why do we do things like that? Because a lot of times we are, we're afraid of the answer. We're embarrassed by the request. And that's why, you know, sometimes your kids will often send the youngest one to go to mom and dad to ask them something. 
Have you ever done that with your kids? Stop asking about this. If you ask me if we're going for ice cream one more time, you know, you're in big trouble. So what do they do? They go con one of the little ones into going, hey, are we going for ice cream? Okay. Anybody else's kids ever done that to them? All right. Might, might have done it many times, and that's pretty annoying. And it's because, and they do, they, and, and it is, it's a, it's a good sign of a coward when they got to send a messenger to say something that they should just be able to do themselves. And so Joseph, when they, when this is brought to him, he's weeping. And, and I don't know for sure why he wept here, but it, it may, maybe it was because they thought he was like, he was like one of them. Like, you guys really think I'm like you? You know, you really think. I'm that wicked, it, you know. That makes me feel bad. I do. I do feel bad, you know, when people just assume terrible things about me, because it's like, you know, I don't want pe- people to think I'm that wicked. Now, sometimes it's just because, again, they're wicked in their own heart. But you know, just the fact that they have to say these things, bring these things up. You know, I was just talking to somebody uh, recently, and they were just like, "Are you recording this call?" And I was, you know, I was embarrassed that they even asked that. I was like, is that what you think of me? You know, and, you know, and I, and I got to thinking about it. And I was like, well, you know, I guess I can't really blame him for thinking that because, uh, you know, how things are, you know, in, in the IV world sometimes where everybody, you know, when people have a YouTube channel, everybody wants to record their conversation with people so they can get some hits on YouTube. I think that's messed up. And I only record the calls of enemies and I always let them know. You know, when it, if, if it's an enemy, but man, just the fact they asked me that I was just like, man, they must not think very highly of me. <laughs> the, the very the fact that they even had to ask that, but uh, I don't know. So maybe that was part of it. Maybe it was just kind of an insult. You know, it could have been because Joseph was sad that they still didn't realize that he really did love them. You know, I think that's how God probably feels quite often when people are still trying to work their way to heaven when He's promised to forgive them. When God has been gracious, God has told them they can be saved by grace through faith, but yet people have this attitude, I still don't think God's going to forgive me. I still think he's going to send me to hell. I've got to repent of all my sins. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do all these good works. I've got to be good enough. You know, and I, I'm, I, I guarantee you that makes God feel bad when people have that kind of attitude. So maybe that was it. You know, it could have been too with Joseph. Maybe it was because he did feel like getting vengeance but and felt bad about it at the same time. You know, sometimes we do the right things, you know, not because it's in our nature, but because it's just what we're supposed to do. And I don't know about you, but there's many times where the good that I do, it's not me going off my instincts. It's me doing what God has told me to do. And, um, you know, I just... I was just listening to a sermon uh, today. I, I forgot what the title was exactly about basically being a put on. You know, we often tell people don't be a put on, but he was making the art. He was saying in that sermon how, you know, for everything that the Bible tells us to put off, more often it tells us to put something on. I talked about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and putting on all these attributes. And the truth is, we're not, that's not how we really are, is it? But yet we've been told to put that on. And so even though it goes against our nature, it goes against our instincts, we ought to put those things on. We, we need to put off that old man. We need to put on Jesus Christ. And eventually, 
hopefully it'll it'll get to where it's second nature to us. Hopefully, eventually, it'll get to where that is who we are. That is how we act. But it's not going to start out that way. You have to put it on. And Joseph, maybe he was. Maybe he was struggling with these things. And so, um, you know, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I say all that to just say that it is really bad. It's a, it, you know, it's a terrible thing when people misjudge others like that, when they project horrible things on them. And then when you treat somebody like they're like you. Don't, you know, don't do that to people. It's a really bad thing. And I think it was hard on Joseph, and he, it, it, it caused him to weep. And so verse 18 says, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And so I think this was probably more out of fear than repentance personally. But Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God. And I love that too, because Joseph understood that vengeance belonged to God before that had even been written. And you know, Romans twelve nineteen says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And there's many places in the Old Testament where God talks about vengeance belonging unto him. But Joseph said this before God ever said these things. This is another example of something that Joseph understood before it had been written in the scriptures. And that is an amazing thing. Uh, you know, it's not that impressive for us to know these things, but it was impressive for Joseph. It just shows the kind of character he had. But you know, another thing that's interesting about that in studying the book of Genesis, and if if it's if studying the book of Genesis has taught me anything, it's taught me that there was a great deal that these people did know about that was biblical. That's or I, I let me put it this way: there was a lot of there was more of God's word you could say, that was revealed to them than what's just written in the book of Genesis. Okay? And, and I say that because we sometimes falsely assume, for example, that when, like when we're reading Genesis chapter 25, that all they knew about God is what we read in Genesis 1 through 24. And that's not necessarily true. You know, that's not necessarily true at all. I guarantee you Adam and Eve knew a few things about God since they got to walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, when you see the relationship they had with him for a short time, when you see the kind of relationship that Abraham had with God, you know there's a few things that they knew that they probably passed on. You know there are some things that were said to them that are not recorded in the scriptures, and many of those things are probably same things that were written in the scriptures later. So, um... You know, we can't just assume that these guys just had no comprehension of certain things when all the evidence points to the fact that they did understand a lot of things. I mean, somehow Abraham seemed to understand an awful lot about salvation and about the resurrection, even though we don't see anything written about it in, in the book of Genesis. Job, Job knew about the resurrection before Genesis is even written. How did he know about the resurrection? You know why? Because somebody told him about it. Because some, God had revealed it to someone. And so just because something is hasn't been recorded in the scriptures yet, it doesn't mean they didn't know these things. There was a lot of things that they understood. You say, well, I want to know what it was. I want to know when they were told. You know, we don't need to know that. The fact is, you know, we might not read about it until the New Testament, but that doesn't mean nobody knew about some of these things in the Old Testament. And... 
the, but if the New Testament teaches it, again, you know, all of this Bible is for us. Okay? Yes, it has to be rightly divided. Yes, we've got to take things into context. Obviously, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a sin we have to worry about because none of us know where that tree is. But at, at the same time, the principles are timeless, and uh, there's, there's a, a lot more that they understood back then than we realize. And I think that's a false dispensational assumption that people have that all they knew, all Abraham could have possibly known about in Genesis 15 is what God had said, what we read in, from Genesis 1 through 14. But here's the thing about that, too. None of Genesis had been written in, during Abraham's lifetime. None of it. So, you know, these are just common sense things that we need to think about sometime. And so if we see them practicing something in the book of Genesis that we don't see God commanding until later in the book of Exodus or Leviticus or something, doesn't mean that, you know, or I think what we can assume is that God told them to do it back in Genesis. So, um, you know, these, these are all, it's just common sense to understand that. We don't have to know the exact details on that. So anyway, verse 20 says, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Again, Joseph understood Romans 8.28 before it had been written. So verse 21 says, Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Joseph did not use this as an opportunity to, to just to prove how sweet and godly he was. Joseph just did what it was in his heart. And it just happened to show that he was, in fact, godly. This is Joseph loved his brothers, even after all that they had done. Joseph understood loving your brethren before that had been written. And he did. He loved his brothers. He wanted to be good to them. He wanted to take care of them. He realized that God had put him in a position where he could be a great blessing to his family. And you know what? He wanted to be a blessing to his family. And I'm sure one of his brothers at one point or another, because they were so wicked, probably thought Joseph just trying to show off. That's why he's helping us out. You know, that not that how we often are? We just assume people are doing things for all the wrong reasons, and they just couldn't get it with Joseph. It's like these guys, their hearts just would not get converted. But Joseph did. He loved these guys. So verse 22 says, And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Matcher, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. And one of the greatest blessings that I think a man can receive is the privilege of seeing his descendants. And, and not just seeing them, but having a relationship with them too. Not just living as long as they're alive, but they were actually brought up on his knees. He actually got to hold them and bounce them on his knee and play with them. And, you know, that that's a great blessing. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget my dad when he became a grandpa. It was just like he was he was so excited about it. I mean, I almost felt like sometimes he was as excited or more excited than I was about becoming a dad. It's like, isn't it a bigger deal to become a dad? But yet he just, you know, he went nuts over it. And I've seen that with a lot of people. And you know what? I'm kind of getting that now, you know, and. Um, I said, I haven't experienced it yet, but when that day comes, I'll know what it's like. And I've heard a lot of them say, you, know, you have no idea what it's like becoming a grandpa. You, you never know what it's like until you experience it. And, you know, I believe them. And we see even in the Bible how it brings that up. And that would be neat 
seeing your great-grandchildren. That would be neat, seeing your great-great-grandchildren. And you know, I believe one of the reasons it really mattered to these guys too, because again, these guys, they were starting nations, they were starting cities, they were planning, you know, they weren't expecting Jesus Christ to return in their lifetime. They knew that they were going to have descendants, hopefully forever. And so the more you had, the more blessed they felt. That's my name that's going to go out there even further. And that's why, too, you know, sorry, ladies, they made a really big deal about sons. It was always a really, really big deal when you had sons because they were the ones that carried on your name. Your daughters, you give them away, and they take another name. You know, and, of course, the, you know, my daughters, when they have children, I love them just as much as any, uh, any of my boys' uh, children, too. But at the same time, you know, you like having your name out there. But my daughters are going to help expand somebody else's name. I want the name of McMurtry out there. You know, so it becomes more of a common name so people know how to pronounce it and spell it. You know, and tired of getting called all the weird things. And that's what happens when you have a unique last name. But uh, I did all I could to make it more common. I started out with two boys, but then I was all, all boys I could get. And, but uh, ho hopefully my boys will do twice as much as I did, just as I did twice as much as my dad did as far as having boys because he only had one. But anyway, so verse uh, 24, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. And ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph's statement right here shows that while things were still friendly, they were in captivity. They did have a desire to depart, but they were they just they weren't able to. They they physically could not have done it. Egypt would have finished them. And, and no problem at all. And so while the time was not right, because they physically couldn't have done it, Joseph, he prophesied that the time would come where they would be able to leave. Even though he would be dead, he would go with them. And this was a prophecy that he gave. And they knew this. We've seen throughout the book of Genesis how these last words, they were always kind of a big deal with these patriarchs. They were always a really big deal. They always wanted those blessings. And so Joseph, when he's talking to the children of Israel, those that are left, he got them to vow that they would carry his bones out of there. And, and we see in the book of Exodus, it's mentioned in there, whenever they were leaving Egypt, that they took the bones of Joseph just like they were supposed to. You know what they did? I, I hate to get sidetracked here, but they kept the promises that their fathers had made hundreds of years before. That mattered to them. It, and you know what? It ought to matter to us as Americans what our country was founded on and how we were started and the promises were made and the laws that were put into place. And we have a responsibility to carry those things out. Well, I wasn't there in 1776, you know, when they did all that stuff. But you know what? We are the beneficiaries of it. We are the descendants of it. Well, my descendants weren't here then. But yeah, well, yours came over here and decided they wanted to join this country. You know what? They should have made sure they knew what they were getting into. And... You know, we ought to honor our forefathers and what they did that was good. And we ought to confess the sins of the things that they did wrong. But you know what? 
I see in our country today more people cursing the good rather than you know than just confessing the sins that they did. They're they're down on all the good things that were done and not confessing the sins, and I think that's a shame. And it was this vow he gave. It would not be fulfilled in that day. It would not be fulfilled by the people who made the vow, but yet it was fulfilled by those people because those descendants were of those people. And they were able to do that. And we've got to get that back in our head. We've just we've got we've got this attitude today that previous generations, they just they don't even matter. All they did was just brought us in the world and they owe us everything. But no, we actually we owe them something. We owe them something. We need to get back to that attitude. And so this prophecy that Joseph uh, made, it would have been very important to him. Otherwise, they would have been in a difficult situation where while they're under this soft oppression, it might have caused them to get scared and take action at the wrong time, which could have caused them to die. Because think about that. You know, isn't that where we're at today in our country? We're like, all right, they're getting out of control. They're taking over. When do we act? And that's the big question, right? The big question is always, when does the revolution start? You know, we're all ready to fight when the time is right. We just don't know for sure when the time is right. And so in the meantime, we're like, you know, feel like we ought to do something. But if we do it the wrong time, we could ruin everything. And it wouldn't be right. But if we wait too long, we don't want to miss an opportunity. And then it'd be a whole lot worse. And I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers on that. But thankfully for them, while they probably felt that way quite a bit, at least they had a prophecy, they had a promise that God would deliver them, that God would get them out of Egypt. They knew that day was coming. And so because of that, they, they were able to have hope and wait for that deliverer to come, which he eventually did. And it wasn't for a long time. It wasn't until hundreds of years later. And, but I guarantee you that prophecy helped, just like the prophecy of Christ's return helps us out. Because I don't know if y'all realize this, Christians aren't taking over the world. And you know, the Bible never prophesied that we would. Okay, the postmillennialists are wrong. Postmillennialism is just wrong. That's all there is to it. We are not going to take over the world. Things are going to continue being getting worse. The Antichrist is eventually going to take over. And he is going to make war with the saints. But we will be delivered, will we not? We believe that Jesus Christ will return and he will rescue us. And so when it comes to when it comes to the spiritual battle when it comes that is out there, we know when it comes to the spiritual battle not to engage in military action. We're not gonna we're not gonna go and physically conquer a nation in the name of Christianity. We're not gonna go killing infidels. Okay? And again, if as a nation you know, we want to fight for freedom. That's a separate thing. You you can do that as an, in the name of America, but not in the name of Christianity. Okay, we got we always have to make sure we separate those things, and and we will we should never do anything like that as Christians. And you say, but things are get things are bad. You know, they're getting stronger. You know, we're we're kind of being surrounded, feeling closed in on. But you know, it doesn't matter. God's going to deliver us, and God did just like God kept His promise. To the children of Israel, God will keep his promise to us. And so the 400 years in Egypt, I, I believe it would have caused a major crisis in faith had they not had that prophecy, had they not had that promise. And there's a lot of Christians throughout history 
that probably would have had a major crisis in faith if it wasn't for the fact that we had the promise of the return of Christ. If, it, if you know, and even with that, I'm thankful we have um, you know Peter who said that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. I am so thankful for that passage. You know, that the passages like that are what tell me that, you know, even though things are looking bad, Jesus is coming back. And I don't want to be one of those scoffers. I don't want to be one of those people that just give up and flop out thinking Jesus isn't coming back. I don't want to be one of those people. And I'm glad we have these scriptures that help us with that. Because otherwise, I'd be like, you know what? Maybe he isn't coming back. Maybe we do need to take over. You know, and then we're like the Catholics going on crusades trying to conquer the world for Jesus Christ, where we're killing people and torturing people that we think are infidels. That, that wouldn't be good. Thank God we have these prophecies. And so in the book of Genesis, and this is an important thing we need to understand about the book of Genesis, it's the book of beginnings, okay? It's a, it's, it's a part of the Pentateuch. It's a part of the books of Moses. But understand, the books of Moses... Those first five books, they were, you could say, in many ways, like the founding documents for that nation of Israel. And so the, the book of Exodus, it, that, right, you know, it starts with that king that does not know Joseph. Kind of just giving an overview of the history and the oppression that they were under. But then it starts out showing how God ends up calling out Moses and ends up delivering them. God ends up giving them their law. And sets up the Levitical priesthood. We see all that through the books of Exodus, through Deuteronomy. And it goes all the way up until they are going to go into the promised land. So Exodus and Deut through Deuteronomy, it's real easy to see how they're all together. But the Bible starts off with Genesis, the book of beginnings. You know why? Because it's written by Moses to the children of Israel as they are about to go into the promised land, showing them their origins, showing them how everything got started. That's what it's doing, and it's interesting how the book of Genesis, it ends with a major prophecy of deliverance, and then there's a big gap of hundreds of years before we get into Exodus. And it's kind of the same thing that we see in the Old Testament. When you get to the book of Malachi, what do you see? You see a major prophecy about the Messiah. You see a major prophecy about Elias or John the Baptist, who's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And then you know what you have in there? You have a big gap. You have a big gap of about 400 years while people waited for the Messiah to come. And you know what? Messiah came. And then the New Testament, it ends with a promise. It ends with the promise of Jesus Christ returning to this earth. And then you know what we have? We got a really big gap. We got the gaps keep getting bigger. We have a really big gap. And we're waiting for that one. You say, why does the gap keep getting bigger? Well, you know, God kept making the gaps. Gradually, we're getting bigger in these things to just kind of increase our faith because by the last one, it was going to be the biggest gap. You know, we see they keep getting bigger. But either way, just like God came through in Exodus, just like God came through in Matthew and fulfilling his prophecy, God is going to come through in the future with what's been promised in the book of Revelation and we're waiting for that. That's what that, that's what we're doing right now. You know what we're doing right now? We are occupying till he comes. Right now, we are just following that great commission, 
We're, we're just still doing the same work that he called us the, the apostles to go out and do. We're doing the same work that they did back then. And we are going to continue doing this work until Jesus Christ comes back. And you know, hallelujah for that day. It will come. And we've, we've got, all, I mean, look at all the evidence we have of just prophecies and God keeping his promises. We have so much of that. And there's God, God gave us enough examples to leave zeroed out that he will come through again on what's been, what he prophesied on. And we have been prophesied deliverance. And I'm looking forward to that. You know, I, I'll, I'll bet there was probably a few carnal uh, Hebrews that probably enjoyed watching some of the plagues that came on the Egyptians after all that they'd done to them. I don't know. That's just what I think. You know, I can't help but thinking as they looked at the Red Sea and saw the waters closing in on some of them, they might have recognized one of those soldiers that beat them up one time or something. It's like, yes. <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes I like to think about when it all goes down and the Lord takes care of the J.B. Pritzkers and the Barack Obamas and the Nancy Pelosi's and all these people that just make us miserable sometimes, don't they? At least try. You know, you, and just like God, I mean, we, we saw what God did to Pharaoh. We see that God is serious about judgment. God rained down fire and brimstone on the Sodomites. The Sodomites are going to get what's coming to them. Yeah, they get to have their pride parades now, but uh, they're not. One of these days, those parades are going to end. And I'm looking forward to that. No doubt about it. It's coming. And so Genesis, I like it. It ends. Ends with a prophecy, and there's a big gap to the next book. And that's Exodus, where it's being fulfilled. Same thing in Malachi, and, and we are right now in the gap between Revelation and the return of Jesus Christ. And so let's just stay faithful until that day comes. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this book of Genesis and just all the amazing lessons that we are able to learn from it. And I pray to help us to... Remember these things, and Lord, help us to remain faithful, and just uh, whenever we maybe have doubts or get discouraged, help us to remember all the prophecies and all the promises that you've kept in the past. Lord, there's no reason for us to doubt that you're going to keep these ones that, uh, that are still to come, and so we thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen.